Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutha Foundation was founded for this potential cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chata Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Today is going to be a great show. I'm so looking forward to this and it's going to be in two parts. So be sure to listen to parts one and two, and I hope you enjoy it. Yakoki. All right. So once you get to the 1850s, you have a lot more of Choctaw government becoming much more complex, right? You start mm-hmm. to see, um, of course, you have the Chickasaws who are kind of now a part of it. And so you have the four districts and they all each have their own kind of court systems, very similar to how the courts kind of operate today. Mm-hmm. Um, so judges were elected, they had like a two-year term and they had handled a lot of issues like divorce, probate, um, hearings for people who are charged with major crimes and minor offenses where the penalties don't exceed $50. Um, It's really, um, you see a lot of issues regarding property um, because that's becoming a lot more prevalent in Choctaw society. You know, before Choctaws didn't practice the, um, what we consider private, individual private property in the same kind of way Uh. um, where it's kind of really absolute. Um, And so that's really in this period coming um being really integrated in Choctaw society and then the judges and the courts are where we're seeing this kind of play out mm, interesting and then and those four districts are a Pukshanubi, Pushmataha, Moshalatubi, and Chickasaw correct mm-hmm. okay um okay so when the Choctaw leadership had signed the 1820s treaty of of Doak stand um, what, what did that do for the land there? So, um, basically with that kind of treaty, you're, we were really secure. Um, they secured, um, a large stretch from lacrosse, what kind of includes Arkansas into what is, um, all of Southern Oklahoma and part of that Texas panhandle. Mm-hmm. So technically all of that was Choctaw and, um, slowly over time, it's been kind of divided up into smaller and smaller bits. And so it was really trying to deal with that. 
the, a lot of those lands belonged to like the Caddo, the Quapaw, the Wichita, and the Comanche, right? And they didn't really kind of negotiate with them about that. They're just like, no, we're just gonna we're just doing it. it. Yeah, yeah, oh and my then gosh. selling and getting it um, um, over to the Choctaws <laughs> to handle it. And so they kind of have to um, throughout this time period, and especially in the early years, it was such a has. It was you know because. It was there's there would be raids into that kind of area because you know oh they goodness. they're like these are still our homelands like hello right. who do you guys I wondered think if you that are? happened like <laughs> get out of our lane but no yeah. way does that I mean I've never even read anything about that like what did that look like when they first got there was there a fort there that helped the Choctaws were there soldiers what did they do. So actually, um, when because the Chickasaws are given kind of the western portion of um, Choctaw territory, and so because they are more western, they were kind of seen as a buffer between um, those uh, Chato Comanche kind of nations, and uh-huh. they would come in and do raids. And so um, when the Chickasaws were kind of like their own district, they're like, "Oh my gosh, we keep getting raided. Um, the U.S. government has to do something about it." And so they asked actually the U.S. government to build a fort for them there um, oh, okay. to kind of um, stop all, kind of put an end to so much raiding. But yeah, eventually do they do kind of build a fort? And um, yeah, I can't remember what the fort is called off the top of my head right now, but they build yeah. a fort there. Yeah. Wow. And are, do you know of any stories? How can people learn more about this? Or do you just off the top of your head, know of any stories of those raids or, you know, did they take some of the Choctaw women and children? What did, what did that look like in detail from a personal perspective, from the human perspective? Um, it was a lot of um, people would have like cattle ranches. And so it was a lot of like cattle theft primarily. Oh, okay. It wasn't like um, it was like getting their kinds of crops because it was also not very um, settled it kind of in that period mm-hmm. it was still pretty open um, a lot of the Chickasaws actually settled in the Choctaw territories because um, that was kind of what they were allowed they could live yeah. in either the designated Chickasaw um, district or they could live within any of the three other Choctaw districts and that was totally okay and so really early on um, there's actually not that many Chickasaws in the Chickasaw district. Really? Um, and that was actually a problem for the Chickasaws for a long time because they're like, so many of our people actually live in Choctaw districts instead of the actual <laughs> Chickasaw <mess>. districts. <laughs> yeah. And so um, it was like um, not as many people and it was very, and you know, people were like, they heard about the raids. So they're like, we're not going to move out there. <laughs> um, right, so more right. is going to be kind of done, but um, there's like descriptions of like cattle raids, um, getting their cattle stolen because that's kind of um what was really kind of you know you know that western area is a lot more kind of open yes Um, okay yeah but um crazy David Levere right has a has a history called contrary neighbors um that kind of talks about those removed people um in Indian territory and if you read Alina Roberts' book about um, Black freedom in Indian territory, which is about Choctaw freedmen, the first chapter actually of her book talks about um, how Choctaw, you know, the five tribes moved into this area, but it actually belonged to other people. So that's another. That'd be super interesting that has to read both of those books. And I hate to tell you again, because I was trying to write this down as you were saying it, um, the Choctaw Freedman book, what was it called and who was it by again? Okay, it's called I've Been Here All the While, Black okay. Freedom on Native Land by Alina Roberts. Oh, perfect. I'm going to make sure that 
that is posted on my native Chalk Talk Facebook page. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting. My, my part of the reason I also try to gather these books, it's not just for myself, it's for our listeners, of course, but even my sister-in-law was telling me one time that she writes down all the books that I say in the podcast and she's been going through each one. I'm like, man, you read a lot faster than I do. She, she does a lot of reading. She's super smart and, and can get through them pretty quickly. But, um, I, I think it's great when people participate like this, you know, be part of our native Chalk talk book club. So <laughs> anyway, it's something for everyone to think about, you know, read these books that are by Choctaw or native authors and get together with friends. You don't have to be native to read them. Um, I think if we all did that, we would all learn so much and it's just a lot of fun and you learn it's history, but you know, like Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer's are historical fiction. So she bases it on real events and real people in many cases, but just kind of fills in the blanks with that, um, you know, fake names. And then also um, fictional events that may have happened to fill in some of those gaps. So, all right, well, a little plug for Sarah there. She's amazing. And, and for, I can't wait to read all these other books you're mentioning. So, okay. So question for you, I mean, in the whole scheme of things, I, and again, lay person here on the laws when it comes to that time and even today, but did the U S have legal authority to give these lands belonging to other tribes to the Choctaw? No, not really. <laughs> we kind of didn't really <laughs> sign quite. I don't, I, I uh, can't remember the exact kind of legal history, but you know, these tribes were like, you can't just kind of give yeah. it away. So oh my God. I can't say for sure, but I know it's like kind of fuzzy. Well, and as much as we know that those tribes, you mentioned a lot of them were warring tribes. You wouldn't want to step into their territory on a normal day, much less oh, hey, we're the new tribe and we're actually going to live here. And you know, the Choctaws, they're just such nice people, you know, like, hey. (laughs) Um, So I can't even imagine what that would have been like for those, like, let's say the Comanche, for instance, someone is now sitting in the territory where you've been for many years. And as much as they were warring tribes, super cool tribe, by the way, um, that's, that was their land. That's where they lived. That's generations and maybe even centuries of uh, their people. So I feel for them as well. It's really crazy. So you've talked about the raids and there's something I think is interesting. It's, it's a, a really strange guy who's a U.S. agent, William Ward. Tell us about that, what that shady guy was up to. Okay. <laughs> so this goes back to kind of removal. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the articles and removal, you know, they had such a hard time kind of negotiating it. They've never really done removal before in the, at the large scale Mm -hmm. of a completely moving an entire people to a different, completely different place, um, at such a large scale. Yeah. And so, um, one of the things that they kind of negotiated was article 14, which allowed some Choctaws to stay, um, in the homelands, um, and then they, they would receive allotments kind of there, but then they would become citizens of Mississippi and would kind of have to abide by that, but they could still um, stay. And so um, when they did that, they were supposed to be registered um, by the Indian agent who was um, William Ward, but he really did not want people to stay. Mm-hmm. He kind of wanted them all out of there. And so he sabotaged, so he, so people would come up and um, be like, hey, I want to register and so he would kind of do it but then kind of like got rid of the records or like refused um, to register them at all and so because they didn't have a proper record as this guy was responsible for doing um 
the U.S. government ended up selling a lot of these Choctaws allotments against their wishes. And so that kind of forced some people to um, go to Indian territory when they didn't want to. Um, but then some people just had poor economic kind of conditions to live with as a result of that. So do you think that he was getting something personally by doing this? Like, was he getting an extra tip by, by doing this? I mean, like, what was, what was in it for him? Or did he just hate American Indians or something? Um, I, I don't know his particular um, history. Um, I imagine a lot of, in these kinds of situations, kind of more generally, uh, these kinds of people had connections with businesses who wanted to acquire land. And so they had those kinds of other <laughs> interests of like helping um, companies who wanted to like acquire land and then sell it off and then they would get kind of kicked back. But I don't know if that's the case for Ward, but sometimes like that, especially once um, we're in Indian territory and they do the allotment over here, that was definitely the case. A lot of people were kind of, um, in cahoots with these like government officials yeah. to not kind of properly document things or fudge numbers in that kind of way. And then they would get um, some kind of like interest or something. Yeah. I don't like him. I don't like this agent <laughs> William Ward. <laughs> yeah, no, he was pretty terrible. <laughs> yes, he um, was. He yes, was. Yes. Well, and you know, he affected one side of my family's allotments as well. So exactly what you explained there happened to my great granddaddy's family. They were told specifically, and it's documented uh, by them. Um, they were told by him to go West. So they went to Texas. So that guy's family, which is my great granddaddy, his wife, my great grandmother's family was able to register, but, but her husband's family, of course, wasn't because of William Ward. And they say that in the interview when they're trying to get enrolled later. So they tried later mm. to enroll and they got rejected. It has the big stamp on it, on the document. And it's kind of interesting to see. And, and you see the, the interview and they're like, no, we were just told to go to Texas. So that's where we went. I mean, had you heard any stories like that too? Did he tell him them to just go West, go somewhere, you know, and I don't know. It's a pretty narrow niche to ask, but. Yeah. So I haven't heard like the individual kind of family stories, but that's kind of the general gist that I was kind of seeing Okay, um, that lots of people were he's just like, nope, I'm not going to do this. Or like, I'm just not going to register you go on to Indian territory. What if he's just like, I feel kind of lazy today. I kind of don't want to fill out the paperwork. Just go to Texas. <laughs> we all have those days right yeah where he but he it's just like he just wanted all of the natives kind of out of there yeah just go just get out so you know you talked about the in the article you talked about there was this 640 acre allotment that the people who stayed in Mississippi the Choctaws that they would receive that they could stay there and receive that 640 acre allotment um, so that is that collectively, like if, if 6,000 people stayed, for instance, did they just divide that 640 acres among themselves? Um, I think it was like per individual, That's um, a lot of acreage. It, it is a lot because the homelands are pretty big. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, but basically what they wanted to do was like, um, you would get kind of this acreage and then they would sell it. And then the proceeds, um, this becomes the kind of net proceeds case, yeah. which is super mm -hmm. important, like post this period, post removal, 
it's like what Peter Pitchlin is obsessed about. <laughs> oh boy. Because it's like, cause it's yeah. like so much money. Cause they were supposed to use that money from the sale of the lands and give it to the Choctaws, you know, to kind of run their government and just, or do whatever they want with it. And so it's like millions of dollars. And um, Peter Pitchlin is like, come on, you gotta give us our money. And then Congress is like, oh, we don't have enough money this year. And it's like that for years. And I don't think- um, oh, Powerless, there's no power at all. They were just, they had nothing. Yeah, so yeah. as you mentioned, there's that case called the net proceeds case. And then the raids on the Chickasaws and their requests for political separation. And then all these things initiated the Treaty of 1855, right? Yes. So the Chickasaws, you know, they're living kind of there from 37 to 55 in their district um, within Choctaw Nation. And they're like, we're always getting outvoted. Um, we're not really kind of getting what we want from this. Um, Poor and Chickasaw. Been- <laughs> and they're experiencing all of these raids. And then, um, so they're really adamant about getting, um, becoming their own nation again. Um, and then, you know, leaders like Peter Pitchlin are like, yo, we need the, the net proceeds money. Like we got to kind of force the U.S. government to like put in writing that they're going to pay us out. And right. so um, that kind of, that they, these kind of combine, um, that leads them to do the Treaty of 1855, um, where you have the separation of the Chickasaws and the Choctaws into two nations, but they still kind of own the land collectively together. You have that separation and yeah. So from, from reading the article, which is, again, these articles are so fascinating. Um, the treaty significantly divided the man, the massive land mass, the Choctaws initially had gained in 1820, decreasing from over 23.7 million acres to a mere 6.688 million acres, which that's still a lot of acreage, but compared to what they did have, I mean, it's crazy. Um, and then it was splitting the Choctaws and the Chickasaws into two separate nations, giving the Chickasaws what they want and probably the Choctaws as well. And then uh, after paying the Choctaw Nation $800,000 for their lands west of the Chickasaw district, the U.S. government could use the land to resettle Wichita and other Western Plains nations, if I read all of that correctly. Um so what I think is interesting too, is I have someone sent me a map one time and it was a move, like you would click on it, press play, and then it would show all the, the changes within Indian territory over time, um, and how the districts were separated. And it was really cool. I, I wonder if I could find that somewhere because it's hard to keep up with it all. It gets jumbled in my head. I'm sure it does other people's. Um, okay. So next up, a new constitution is needed for the Choctaws. Yes. Um, so you have in 1857, a group of um, Choctaws and they meet at Scullyville at the Choctaw Agency to kind of create a new constitution. Oh, and by the way, Scullyville, what does that, do you know what that means in Choctaw? Yeah. So the word, is, it comes from the word um, Scully, which means money. And oh. so the Choctaw Agency is kind of where Choctaws would go to get money from the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Um, So they would receive their kinds of payments whenever they had any. And so that's where they kind of went. And so um, I think that's kind of why they saw it as like money. Money, yeah, money bill. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. Interesting. And so when other uh, Choctaw citizens read the constitution, how did they take it? 
Was it popular? Was it unpopular? It was deeply unpopular. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> oh. Because it was um, seen as representing the interests of the slave owning Choctaw minority who really wanted to keep chattel slavery around as an institution. And so um, this, you know, this is the lead up to the civil war. And so around in the United States, which was, you know, which was so close by, um, they were really concerned about slavery um, yeah. and like who was going to be a slave state, who was not going to be, uh, who's going to be a free state and kind of those negotiations and the upsetting of the balance and kind of all that stuff. Um, mm. But yeah. And so, you know, slavery is increasingly um, contentious in this time period. Yeah. And I mean, I, I noticed you said some prominent Choctaw families, particularly mixed blood ones, and I'm not sure why mixed blood, but they had picked up the practice of, of slavery while in the homelands and brought slaves over on the trail of tears. Um, and then, but usually traditionally the full blood ones did not own slaves. Do you know why that is? Um, it, so, you know, Slavery is very um, rooted in the concept of private property. And as I kind of said before, you know, Choctaws didn't have the same Western idea about private property mm-hmm. and like the idea of ownership, complete ownership of a person, you know, mm-hmm. in that right. kind of way. It's not a Choctaw idea, it's very much a kind of imported one. And so usually um, it's like, the white father who brings in these ideas about property and slave ownership into their kinds of families, um, mm-hmm. into Choctaw families, right? Because you know, Choctaw oh, women that often sense. married um, white men because you know they were traders, they were um, yeah merchants, and they had all these kind of different kinds of social connections where like um, you could bring in, um, it, you know, it's a lot of economic reasons why you would like want to bring in a white kind of relation to a different kind of society so you can secure the very good trade items you can have metalware all of the kinds of trade materials that Choctaws didn't kind of have and like if you brought someone in to marry you could kind of have access to those things and so it was very like um economically kind of desirous and so but you know that also comes with um the entire kind of cultural baggage of settler yeah. society, which includes the ideas of property and slavery and kind of incorporating all of those. And so, um, and, you know, because they're marrying in, these white men are marrying into prominent, usually prominent um, Choctaw families, then they're already kind of positioned in leadership ways um, right. through their mother. And so that kind of kind of contributes to um, this ascent of, um, slaver being prominent among the mixed blood kind of, or, you know, how they're described as mixed blood families. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. And I think a lot of people don't know that it's been only in the last like five or six years, I think that people have started even understanding that a lot of American Indians also had slaves themselves, although I have heard, and it's not excusing it. It's a, obviously a terrible thing that we all disdain, but I had heard that Choctaws kind of saw slaves as slaves, but also as family members. And that does not excuse slavery period. But I just wondered if you had heard something like that as well. 
Oh, yeah. So Choctaws also did practice a different kind of slavery. Um, you know, when they would do kinds of raids, they would kind of um, capture people and bring them into their kind of society and then they might work. Um, but, um, and then they could be eventually kind of integrated into Choctaw society. Um, but mm -hmm. this is completely different kind of practice than the kind of chattel European um, settler mode of slavery, <laughs> which kind right. of ascribes um, slavery to skin color and to a race. And so um, it kind of makes those things inseparable. Whereas in Choctaw society, a slave could definitely later on become a part of society um, and a member of a family. Exactly. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. There's so much to that too. I need to do an entire podcast just on the Freedmen. Okay. So another problem was that the new Scullyville constitution eliminated the, the district chiefs, the office of the district chief. And, and then they replaced the three chiefs with a single governor. That's something I didn't know. I mean, I know the Chickasaws still today call their leader, a governor and not a chief, but Choctaws eventually went back to the name chief, right? This particular point was particularly contentious because they saw it as much more of an assimilation um, kind mm -hmm. of government instead of having the autonomous kind of three chiefs, what is, which is what they kind of had in the homelands. They wanted to really kind of get rid of that altogether. And, you know, people are very wary of having a singular leader who kind of negotiates with the U.S. government. And that's just not the way that Choctaws did politics. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. um, they saw that as completely kind of upending that system and that they, that people were saw that as a sign of them wanting to dismantle Choctaw government altogether and that they might be made a part of the United States. And <laughs> people were really opposed to that. So it's kind of the combination of those um, the chattel slavery um, being so kind of a part of Choctaw government, um, like to have it in the constitution itself and then the elimination of the three chiefs. So people were <laughs> all yeah. up in arms, you know, I bet. literally, oh, <laughs> literally my goodness. about this. And so that leads um, another group of Choctaws to kind of meet at Dokesville mm -hmm. in May of 1858. And so they come up with a completely different constitution that they than the one um, that was proposed at Scullyville. And so this one, um, so people had this one and then they elected a whole new set of district chiefs. Like they kind of were like made it and we're like, okay, this is it. And then they held an election and had okay. um, yeah. new district chiefs. And so then we are kind of faced with the Choctaw nation with two governments in this like very <laughs> contentious time period. And um, people were really concerned. They came pretty close to having a civil war basically <laughs> yeah. um, because oh they had goodness. these two governments. And, you know, of course that got the attention of the U.S. government. And so they're like, you guys, we're going to send in federal troops if you don't handle this. Um, and, you oh, know, right. were, that, that was like a worse option than um, arguing over a constitution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in okay. October in um, 1859, um, the two governments kind of worked together um, to create a new constitution and create a government that was aligned with the majority of what Choctaws wanted. And so um, that's kind of how we got that constitution that I think becomes um, the 1860 constitution. 
So I believe it's that one. There is a, a little museum in Chickasha, Oklahoma, where they have supposedly they have the desk where that constitution was signed. Have you heard of that? I did not know that. That come, is wild. Right. So come to Chickasha with me sometime and we'll look at it together. I, I can at least send you pictures and I'll be sure to post them on my Facebook page. In fact, I have the, I've been, I've been going to look at it for years because, you know, every time I'm in Chickasha, I'm like, I should just drop by and say hi to the desk. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this time I actually recorded the, the director there telling me more about the whole situation and all that. And so I want to make a podcast out of that as well. So everyone can hear that, but I mean, little chick Oklahoma apparently has, I know list. it's all the way over there. That's so far from like Scullyville or Dokesville. So it's interesting how it got yeah. over there. Yeah. I wonder what's the story. I mean, Hey, you're a historian. Maybe you can follow the pieces <laughs> and <laughs> figure this out. Yes. Kinda Just get me the provenance information on the desk. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll see where it was. We'll see where it goes. Interesting. Okay. Writing that down. <laughs> so that's what we ended on in April of this series. I just wanted to know what part the Choctaw played in the civil war. You know, it's very interesting. Um, so bring on the May edition, which was about 1860 to 1870, where the Choctaw's participation in the war would backfire. But first up, at the beginning of the decade in 1860, the Choctaws gathered for another constitution convention. Surprisingly, this constitution remained in place until 1983. And at that time, the first post-statehood constitution was passed by the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, so what were the changes in this yet again constitution? So this constitution created the office of the principal chief. Um, and then you, they established the fourth district of Hotobi, um, which basically kind of encompassed all of the least district lands. And so those are the lands that are west of um, Chickasaw Nation. And so those were kind of um, what they were thinking about. Maybe we can lease that to the U.S. government so um, you can have um, the people that we displaced and put them there. Right. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, they was like, um, they were going to kind of thinking about leasing it out. Um, so this constitution had no kind of overt, direct reference to slavery, um, which was what almost started that civil war um, just a couple of years prior. Um, and they kind of avoided that in part because um, they saw that there was a growing abolition kind of movement in the United States. Um, and so the pro-slavery Choctaws kind of really just wanted to avoid a debate altogether. And so we're just like, okay, we won't put it in the constitution. It'll be kind of uh, um, outside laws that kind of governed that. Okay. Very yeah. Um, but at the same time, you have lots of individuals um, who are in support of slavery, who are supporting Southern succession and calling for a Choctaw Confederate alliance. And so these kinds of um, factors really kind of contributed to Choctaw's nation ultimately um, to ally with the Confederacy. You know, originally they're like, no, we want to stay neutral. This is the U.S.'s war. Right. This is not our of... fight, y'all. <laughs> exactly. And so that was like Pete, um, the chief at the time was really trying to maintain that. And Peter Pitchland really wanted it to be neutral because, you know, Peter Pitchland's like had spent all this time trying to get money from the U.S. government that it owed Choctaws. And they're like, if we like cut relations with the U.S. government, they're not going to pay us. 
Right. Like, oh, we just like, uh-huh. we just don't, we cannot do anything about it. But then you have um, right. all these people who are um, individually very um, invested in it. And so people have connections throughout the South. Geographically, Choctaw Nation is considered to be a part of the South. Um, and mm. so they would eventually kind of be under so much kind of pressure um, to join the Confederacy. And so you know, one of the things was the U.S. government was supposed to keep troops to protect Indian territory, um, but then they kind of just all left. <laughs> and oh so my gosh. that was, you know, that oh. was a violation of the treaty. Like that was their kind of job. And they're right. like, you know, the U.S. government was supposed to protect us and now it's not. So like what we're, we are like kind of undefended in some kinds of ways. Um, yeah because of this. And so that also contributes to the decision to like ally um, with the Confederacy. And so they kind of negotiate a treaty and it's a, the terms of it are pretty good comparatively. Like it kind of recognizes um, Choctaw government to a, a, a huge degree. And there was um, talks about them getting a representative to the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. And so they would, so basically they would have it like a delegate in like their version of Congress. And so, you know, they didn't really oh. kind of have that with the U.S. And so they're like, oh, well, like this could be a really good thing and have a little bit more power. And even if that did, um, you know, even if they had won the war, what do you want to bet that they would have broken that treaty too? Oh yeah, no. Cause I think they tried to institute it sometime during the civil war and they're like, yeah, no, <laughs> kind oh. of didn't like, cause, cause they had sent um, a Choctaw named Robert Jones to be that kind of delegate person. And then they kind of really didn't have him as a part. And so he just like oh. eventually kind of left, but he was like, yeah, this is not that much better. Oh my Lord. What a mess. And this is just one more, you know, type of example that we've seen all along where they just didn't have any power and they just kind of were strung along. It's like, I think finally, sometimes they must've just been like, okay, whatever, because you couldn't win. You can't win either way. And the only thing that would make them make any choice was like, oh, we might have some kind of perk in here for the Choctaws. Well, maybe we do go that direction. Cause you know, but again, can't trust the the government. That's for sure. Yeah. So they're very much like, they're very savvy kind of politicians in that kind of way of trying to figure out um, where to go and who to kind of decide. Cause you know, like these people lived in a moment in which, um, you know, maybe the South could have won. And so um, we know now that that wasn't going to happen, but back then, like they were kind of very much in this moment and picked the most kind of strategic kinds of things mm-hmm. for them. So like they, they were, they definitely did kind of have power and they were definitely negotiators um, of that. So, right. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's just, there's so much to this. And I know that you had mentioned that since the U S had broken its treaty obligations to the Choctaw nation, when they removed those troops, as you mentioned, the Choctaws found themselves just surrounded by those Confederate states and um, and those important individual allies who had advised Choctaws in numerous instances joined the Confederacy and they encouraged the Choctaws to do the same. Again, what would you do? So it's, I mean, of course we would hope we wouldn't do that, but we weren't in their situation. So it's starting to sound like the Choctaws who almost would almost have to join the Confederacy or they'd be taken out. 
Yeah. Um, you know, like there was like a really big meeting in which they were kind of the general counsel and a lot of the other kinds of leaders. Peter Pitchlin was kind of there and they were, um, they were all meeting together to kind of decide this. And so they're, um, Originally, Pitchlin was like, we got to be neutral. And then uh, the chief at the time was going to like make a speech about Choctaw neutrality. Um, but then a bunch of like Texans like came up to the meeting and were threatening, you know, like people's lives being like, what? we're going to kill you if you do not. Are you serious? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, Texans. Um, <laughs> and so then after that, you kind of have, you know, you, these people just like came up from Texas, you know, like these random um, pro-Southern leaders in Texas just kind of came up. And so that is oh the kind of um, context in which you live. Like you were so close to the kind of South, you know, like I think that meeting really illustrates the pressures that was being put on Choctaws Wow, to join the South. Crazy. I had no idea a lot of this happened, all of these details in there. Okay. So now we've gone to war and what happens next? So Choctaws do kind of um, start their kind of own regiment and they do send people to kind of fight um, for the Confederacy, but they're, they mostly stay within Indian territory. And I think that was one of the things that they negotiated is like, we're not leaving Indian territory to fight. Like we'll only fight here. Um, mm-hmm. And so they were really adamant about that. And they got actually really bad. I think when one time when they kind of like go into Arkansas and so they were really <gasps> upset about that. Oh, um, <laughs> And so, you know, people from the other five tribes also um, had regiments and so those were kind of combined. And then you also have a Choctaw regiment. Um, And so whenever the Confederacy kind of needed them to fight, then they kind of went and did that. So lots of shadiness going on between the parties. And, And then, so the Choctaw are fighting with the Confederacy, even though the Confederacy isn't holding up to their treaty promises. Surprise, everybody. Uh, but we all know the Union won. So where did that leave the Choctaw? So in the middle, you have um, like around 1863, you have the Battle of Honey Spring, which is the largest battle in Indian territory. Um, the Confederates lost and there was a major loss in supplies. Um, and so this is a kind of turning point moment where Choctaw leaders are like, um, I think they're losing this. Right. And they're starting to figure out how they can kind of resume their relationship with the United States um, and kind of figure that out. So Peter Pitchlin's elected principal chief in 1864. Um, and he's the one who would sign Choctaw Nation's final surrender in 1865. Um, and so a part of that was um, they hired a um, general counsel appointed a commission of people to kind of go to Fort Smith um, to go- negotiate a new treaty with the United States. And so this eventually becomes the Treaty of 1866, which is a reconstruction treaty. Um, and this is kind of the most important, I think, aside from removal, this is one of the most significant documents mm. um, in Choctaw history, right? Because this continues to guide our relationship ah. um, with the United States today, because it's kind of the last treaty. Um, mm-hmm. And so because Choctaws had allied with the Confederacy, um, they were kind they were forced to kind of concede the list, the least district um, um, for $300,000. And so the, the least district, again, is that kind of Western area um, west of Chickasaw territory, which had belonged to the Choctaws and the Chickasaws. Mm. Um, 
And so um, this, so they were forced to concede kind of that. And then um, because Choctaws um, had slaves, the U.S. kind of forced, really wanted them to free their formerly enslaved peoples. Um, and so they kind of said, well, um, if you free your slaves by in two years, they kind of like set a deadline for it, um, you'll get this kind of payment for the lease district. Like you'll get your $300,000. Um, and if you adopt them um, within that kind of time period. And so that is a major kind of component of that treaty. And that um, continues to be really important. Um, another really major condition of the 1866 treaty was the building of a north-south and a east-west railroad oh, through Indian territory. Finally, they get to do that, huh? Yes, yes. <laughs> so, you know, they had been wanting to build a railroad for so long because um, they wanted to be able to take supplies from the kind of north all the way to um, the Mexico, to like the Gulf of Mexico, to go through kinds of Texas mm. and to finally kind of hit that waterway. But, you know, because the tribes had... Um, fee simple ownership of their lands um, in Indian territory, the U.S. government couldn't just like say that these railroad companies could build a railroad, right? Because you could yeah. um, build a railroad through a different kind of nation. And so, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, Chuck doesn't had kind of fought it. And they thought at one point they were like, maybe we should, you know, like have our own railroad, but that was shot down. Um, so 66 is when the U.S. government finally kind of really gets this concession. And um, this just spurs so much change in Indian territory um, after that. Interesting. Yes. Well, yeah. so you mentioned that there was the $300,000 that they had to pay for the lease district and, and all that. And to also another concession being that they had to adopt the former enslaved people or let them go or whatever. So. Um, do you, did they hold up to that? I mean, did they get that money, all that money and were able to use it for those things? <laughs> so Choctaws were supposed to um, kind of either um, figure out what they wanted to do with the freedmen. Were they going to allow them to stay in Indian territory? Were they going to have them live in the lease district? So they were kind of throwing around these different ideas about what to kind of do with um, all of these formerly enslaved people. And um, one of the things was Choctaws, government really was like this is a lot of people who are not Choctaw people and that was a concern for them mm -hmm. because they weren't a part or they weren't um like it, they, they were seen as outsiders kind of in in that kind of way that debate continues today too yes yes and it, it continues today um and I can't talk too much about it so mm -hmm. I'm just trying to just give the history here and so right. just stay neutral right <laughs> yeah so they're historically Same. kind of seen as outsiders and so from that kind of Choctaw national perspective they're like they're just going to come in here with their and not be committed to the you know like the longevity of Choctaw culture and so right. they were really trying to protect that and so because those formerly enslaved people were seen as outsiders and because there were so many of them um it uh the, eventually the role is about six thousand 
um uh-huh. free people when they do the kind of roles of them and that was like huge in compared to like the uh, about eleven thousand, i think um of choctaws and so that's a major kind of population kind of switch and so yeah. they were trying to factor all of those things in being like and so i think at that time period they saw it as they didn't want to keep them a part of Choctaw society because then it completely resets the dynamic of the kind of nation um yeah and yeah. so they were and a lot of sometimes these people would um the enslaved people were like oh we want to be u.s citizens and they're like you can't be a u.s citizen in indian territory like you don't have those rights here and so yeah. people you know formerly enslaved people would kind of advocate for like the kind of um uh, diminishment of Choctaw sovereignty. And so, you know, Choctaw government, when they see that, they're like, no, like if you right. can't live under our laws, <laughs> then you just, you can't live here. This isn't the United States and you can't act like it's the United States. You have to kind of follow our laws. Can you um, imagine but- like this one area, it's not a huge state. I mean, it's a decent size, but you're like surrounded by all these places that live very differently because there were so, you know, Indian territory was such a melting pot by that time of all these different tribes. I I can't even imagine. (laughs) Leave us alone. Just get out. They should have put a big, you know, fort around the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and that increasingly Choctaw Nation was doing this already. Like they were um, trying to keep out the white outsiders because they would also come in and try to marry um and like get land that kind of kind of way and they're like no like we're tired of all these like disreputable people coming in here and bringing alcohol and that kind of stuff and causing just general chaos and so they're really trying to like keep outsiders out and so they're like we just want this to be for Choctaws really yeah and so that's really kind of what they were pushing wow you know um another important treaty point included in those provisions was turning Indian territory into the territory of Oklahoma. So a little name change there proposed by a Mr. Allen Wright and was later appropriated by white settlers for a different territory to the West of Choctaw nation. Always trying to get that Oklahoma land. I still don't understand. It's like, there's this whole country out West. You can't, you have to mess with that little place. <laughs> well, but- it's, it's also, um, this time period, um, the frontier is really kind of closing in some way it's like everyone everything else is kind of getting settled Mm -hmm. and in some ways Indian territory remains this kind of island um, of um, indigenous sovereignty in some ways that um, gets to exist and people start to once they see kind of the rest of the continent being settled they're like oh man what's kind of left and so that's how the gaze I think kind of really turns towards Indian territory and Mm -hmm. white people kind of move that way yeah a few open spaces that makes a lot of sense yeah well and so that brings us to June, where you cover the decade 1870 to 1880, which is marked by coal mining and railroads. That'll be interesting. So tell us about these railroads. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned before, the railroad companies really wanted to build a route from Kansas to Mexico and to go through Indian territory, but they couldn't because of the five tribes. And so Congress used that they, these 1866 reconstruction treaties, um, trying to leverage those treaties to get, get the railway, railway yeah, through. Right. Um, and so um, because they passed the kind of treaty, um, all of these railroad companies were like um, competing to be the one to get the North-South because that was kind of the more important one. Um, so they kind of were like, well, whoever 
build their track from like existing track first one that gets to inventory is the one that will get the kind of contract basically okay and so you have these railroad companies competing um laying down track and so um so three of them it was originally three but it eventually comes down to two the missouri river fort scott and gulf railroad and the missouri kansas texas railway which was also um, known as the katie okay um and so um <laughs> there was a, a bit of like trickery between the railroads because they're kind of competing. And so I think one of the people that worked for MKT um, told the tr- worker that, oh, you have to go in that kind of direction um, up to that area. But then that ended up, that area was actually the Quapaw Reserve, which was where they couldn't cross. And so technically they didn't reach Indian territory. So technically they finished the railroad up until that point first. Um, but it was to the wrong area. So then they couldn't get the, the kind of um, contract. Nuh-uh. And so the MKT had the time to kind of meet Indian territory up um, Cherokee territory because that's the northernmost. And so they reached that border in June of 1870. And so Congress gives them the right of way to go through Indian territory. And so oh. they start to build the MKT um, through the Cherokee and Creek nations. And then they get to Choctaw Nation in 1871. Wow. Okay. So, so I would assume as with any railroad of the day, this new means of transportation, it really meant an increase in business. Yes. And so, um, one of the other things at the same time, um, you, people are starting to kind of really see how much coal is in Choctaw Nation. Um, and so that's, you know, in what is kind of McAllister, Hartshorn, um, basically kind of northern Choctaw Nation, um, that's where these huge coal deposits are located. And some of this, this coal is some of the best coal west of the Mississippi River. And so it's um, very good coal. Um, and people were like, oh, this is, this could be like, there's a lot of potential here for business, you know? Right, right. And so um, one of the, there's like this story of um, this guy who later on becomes a major player, but there's James Jackson McAllister. Um, and he's a white man. He was like a Confederate. He was in the Confederate Army, one of the leaders. I can't remember the title yeah. um, exactly, but he was like <laughs> an important figure kind of. And so he heard about there being coal because um, some U.S. government person had done the survey and he had these maps. And then I guess he gave it to McAllister and was like, hey, these these are the secret maps <laughs> of all the coal that's in Choctaw Nation. Mm-hmm. You should like get in on that. And so he kind of sees it. And then there's this story um, that of him like taking up like some of that coal up to the Missouri, Kansas, Texas Railroad being like, look, there is all of this amazing coal you should build through Choctaw Nation. Like, I think this was kind of before they had started the whole operation to, oh, okay. for the yeah. race. And yeah. so he's like, look at all of this coal. Like you, if you um, build your railroad through here, we can like work something out and you can move the coal and gain a part of those kinds of profits. Interesting. And so, and so, you know, that yeah. was always kind of a driving force in some ways of being like, oh, there's all this kind of coal. And so we can get into the kind of coal mining industry. And so um, that the Missouri, Kansas, Texas becomes this major conduit in which you're exporting coal from Choctaw Nation out into um, the United States. Wow. 
definitely um, a big turning point, that railroad for the like, as you said, the entire United States. And of course, we all know the. if you're from Oklahoma, you typically know the name McAllister. Is that who they named the town after? Exactly. Was, was him. This guy? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, so as I kind of mentioned before, he's a white man. And so he can't actually just come into Indian territory. Um, mm. When he first kind of came, he actually needed to get a permit to even work there. Um, there was like a trading post. And so... Um, McAllister got a job with them. And so they gave him a permit to live in Indian territory or in Choctaw territory. Um, And so, but he kind of like, and that's kind of how he like got in and being able to find the coal that he had in those maps. Um, And so eventually he marries a Chickasaw woman, Rebecca Burney, um, who's a citizen who's Chickasaw, but she's a citizen of the Choctaw nation. Um, and so he marries her. And then because of that marriage, he is able to kind of now be considered an intermarried citizen of Choctaw Nation. And so since he was now like an intermarried citizen, he could um, own property because um, otherwise you're not able to just like own land and so typical whatnot. of the time too, right? <laughs> I mean, these white folks marrying the Choctaws or, or other American Indians and, and, and then you wonder, okay, did he really love Rebecca or, you know, was he out? Yeah, him? it's, I know there, there's kind of all that kind of components to it. And I would have like loved to find her personal papers if she had any, oh, right. um, and what, was, what I, was her maiden name again? Um, Bernie. And so she's actually a very, she came from a very prominent um, Chickasaw family. And I actually think um, it was her brother that was actually a chief <laughs> of the Chickasaws oh, wow. or a governor at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's very, you know, it's a very small world. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. And then you sometimes wonder too, like, I know that sometimes the Indians would say, oh, well, maybe you should marry into that because you'll have a foot into the white world in a good way. That's what they were thinking anyway. So who knows? I mean, if they were a prominent family, it could have been arranged that way by both parties. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I look at these records and like you could, in some ways you can kind of tell that they, they figure out who the important women are that they should marry. Oh. Cause like there are, you know, they're strategic about it. Like they're yeah. like, Oh, this family kind of has access to these lands. Um, cause I, I remember reading one of the other associates of, um, Jack, um, JJ McAllister, that, that's mm-hmm. he's JJ McAllister, James Jackson McAllister. Um, he had, there was a woman who like had these kinds of, uh, her family kind of owned lands in the coal area, but they didn't know that it was like that coal rich area. And so very kind of like intentionally like married into that family and was like, okay, now your brother should sell his land to, or transfer the title to McAllister. And then he'll get a kind of bump in the kind of um, proceeds from that you know they were very like strategic about it because yes, they, they, they kind of manipulated their way into these families to secure land rights and then be able to sell it and then basically create the kind of um coal companies and um leases acquire leases for those kinds of companies that then um kind of explodes into an industry mm-hmm. in this time period and so this is when mining becomes so important to Choctaws. Um, yes. Yes. Well, you know what, yeah. you know, what else is, um, you know, worms their way into things? Weasels. 
shady little weasels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's like pretty kind of crazy. And so, you know, like, I think a lot of the people who like live in these areas think, you know, JJ McAllister was such a great person because he brought all of this, I don't know, like civilization to the area. You have a kind of industry because he kind of is a founder um, in so many of these ways. But I'm always of the like, but this came at such a great cost to Choctaw people. Like, oh, cool totally. that, you know, you have mining, but like, at what cost did it come to the rest of us? You know, yeah, it's like, yeah, let's look at the fine print here. What actually is the history <laughs> of this? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's always what I'm trying to like, make sure because pe people are really proud in this area, right? They're very proud yeah. of this kind of history. And they're like, my family is working in these mines and did all this kind of work. And, um, but like, there's always so much more to the story. Oh my gosh. Right. And again, what's interesting is of course native history is taught in the schools a lot of times, but especially more in Oklahoma than maybe some other States, but not very much of it. There's just, it's so bare. And really, if you're thinking about, you know, Oh, let's study France, you go way back and you study way back then. It's crazy to me that in the United States, you don't go back to the people who originally lived here and teach everything, you know, I mean, I'm, there's a lot more limited information when it comes to American Indians, but why are a lot, a lot of these details not taught before everything else in Oklahoma is taught? It's like, it starts with the land run a lot of times, you know, but yeah, I could get on a soapbox about that one. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, this is like so much, um, like earlier than the land run, there's so much complex kind of stuff happening and, you know, people don't right? really, um, <laughs> talk yeah. about the, you know, like Choctaws ran an entire mining industry in the mid 1800s. It's very yeah, who impressive. Would know that, right? Yeah. It, and it, I think a part of it is like, you don't really kind of know it unless you're kind of from here and like grew up around it. Or you're um, a historian with a master's or doctorate degree. I mean, like, <laughs> when else do you learn it? You know, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a certain kind of way that Oklahoma history kind of diminishes um, the accomplishments that Choctaws kind of had throughout this early time period. Yeah, um, and they were very to, successful. Exactly, but then they can't say that Oklahoma made it much better, right? Because it was already pretty great. Um Right. You know. Right. Well, I know that, um, when it comes to my family that, um, basically they would, they came over, um, during the removal on the, what we now call the trail of tears and they settled in, um, a certain area of the state or Indian territory at the time. Um, they were in the San boys area, which now is called Haskell County, but mm -hmm. so they were over in that area and it's just like, okay, they barely made it over during the removal. So woo, survived that. Then they really started building things up and doing very well for themselves. And, but then one wrong move, um, I talk about this as in, in season two, where basically, um, there was this church camp meeting going on and someone came and told my Coley family members, Oh, your house is on fire. And it's your son-in-law that set it on fire. And he worked for the posse or he worked for a posse. And so, and I think he was native as well, but either way, he had been beating, uh, one of their family members, my, my great, great grandmother, Rosa. And so the family didn't like him, Rosa and this guy were estranged. And so everyone runs to go 
see what's happening with this fire. And there were some innocent people involved that just were with um, the dad of the Coley family who was just trying to go save his house. And all of those innocent people got wrapped in and there were several, I don't know, like six or seven people or something. And they all went to prison because they didn't speak Choctaw and they couldn't explain what was going on. And, and Joe Coley accidentally, um, uh, pointed the finger at some of those other guys when he was really trying to tell the story and they misinterpreted what he was saying. So they all died in jail all, I think, but one maybe, (laughs) and and they died pretty quickly in Leavenworth, which I hear the conditions there weren't very good. The whole reason I say that is every time they, they did well, like the newspapers called them prominent Choctaws. They had a great amount of land and they were doing big things with it. And then of course this happens and the whole family falls apart. It's just like a domino effect. And, uh, the mom has to become a, a housemaid and live with this um, a family that she cleans and cooks for. And then the other kids, she has to dole out to guardians and, and two of the kids die. And it's just like one thing after another. And eventually those people rise up and they do big things. And one of them had a Tiffany lamp in her house. And, you know, it's like they Choctaws were meant to succeed. I swear to God. And they get knocked down over and over and they just get back up and they rebuild. And unfortunately, uh, the government hasn't been kind to them and things are better than they ever have been. So I don't want to sound negative, but it's just crazy, right? It's a, it's a great tribe that has a lot of resiliency. Yeah, definitely. So let's get back to this whole mining thing. Cause I think that's interesting <laughs> for people to know. Um, so the mining industry became an important source of revenue for the Choctaw nation and the tribe did not have complete control though, over the industry, right? Yeah, so it, it's a really important industry. Um, Chief Coleman Cole is really kind of an advocate of using the mining um, as a means of economic development um, for um, Choctaw Nation. He's like, we can use it to um, fund our schools. We can do kind of all of this stuff to make us a little bit more autonomous um, from the U.S. government, you know, to have our own independent revenue source is really important for us to be able to do what we need to get done, mm-hmm. um, to do what's best for the people. Cause you know, you can't trust the U S government to give you the, the payments on time. Right. So, you know, it was, um, really useful for them. And so they have, um, the coal industry, but you know, it's mostly non-Choctaws, um, who are actually working the mines. Wow. Um, And so they are bringing in miners from like Pennsylvania, West Virginia, anywhere on the East Coast. Um, They come to Indian Territory for work, you know, because a lot of um, some of those people got blacklisted in East Coast mines. Um, So they're bringing the best of the best, huh? (laughs) Well, it's mostly because, you know, those miners were blacklisted for trying to improve working conditions. And so they were like advocating for like really strong labor politics basically so I think this kind of convergence of like labor and indigenous sovereignty is so kind of really interesting yeah Um, yeah you know because you know the miners themselves were like we just like want to not die in the mines (laughs) we want it to be a little more safe (laughs) maybe a lunch break every 24 hours you know yeah (laughs) yeah and so um you have kind of that kind of going on and so you have these miners who migrate. Um, and so um, Choctaws are like, oh, this is a lot of outsiders. And, you know, we don't want them living here. We just want them to kind of work in the mines because mm-hmm. um, we don't want them kind of really interfering with our government and 
because, you know, they bring in U.S. intervention in Choctaw affairs. And so they're really trying to stop that. But at the same time, like we need these workers to work in the mines to get all the kind of coal out. And so they would have money for kind of all of that. Um, and so, you know, and, you know, this is in a context in which the U.S. government, you know, members of Congress are passing bills that are like, we should territorialize Indian territory. We should make it a state. Mm, <laughs> and we're like, course. we never wanted to be a state. Please stop right. trying to do this. <laughs> stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, they're, they're constantly having to kind of struggle with that. And then manage all of these people who could possibly become intruders, you know, like Chata Nation issued permits Mm -hmm. to all of these um, migrant workers being like, you can only stay here if you're going to be working and you your work permit is tied to these kinds of companies and kind of all of that. Um, And so it's really a lot kind of going on in this time period. And so, oh yeah, yeah. (laughs) so much going on. And, and it sounds like um, Peter Pitchlin he had gone before Congress and he submitted a 21 page formal protest against the bill. Um, and in your article, you say he argued Choctaw nation can plainly foresee that when a, a territorial government has once been established, their country will be filled with white men. There are people defrauded out of and robbed of their lands as they were in Mississippi with the connivance of the officers of the government, that the jurisdiction and powers of their local legislatures and judiciaries will be encroached on, and these themselves be soon swept away, and that at no distant day the Choctaw people will have disappeared, and the tongue of their ancestors have become a dead language. Wow. And and this was really what the Choctaw Nation didn't want, and it was made clear in the 1830 Removal Treaty. It said that no part of the land granted them shall forever be embraced in any capital, territory, or state. And yet U.S. Congress still worked to claim and take over the five tribes and their lands. It's just, it's got to be, it's maddening, you know? So with all of that, we're leaving on a frustrating note, but we're already to your July article. And we're talking about the decade 1880 through 1890, where the Choctaw nation worked to maintain sovereignty. And so let's get going. Yeah. And so you have the coal mining and the railroads, and, you know, you have the Missouri, Kansas, Texas railroads, but eventually they're kind of starting to build uh, railroads within Choctaw Nation, because you like from the different kinds of coal mines, um, Mm -hmm. you know, coal is very heavy. And so they want to like build railroads between to get it from um, kind of the far off um, mine into um, um, to town or wherever, wherever it meets up with the railroad. So you have these kinds of systems kind of growing. Wow. Um, And then so and you have the workers and the miners. So this is a constant kind of flow of non-Choctaw people in Choctaw Nation. And soon they're really kind of outnumbered by non-Choctaws. So there's more non-Choctaws than there are in Choctaw Nation than actual Choctaws in Choctaw Nation. That's crazy. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, um, yeah, so you have all these workers kind of here and then they're like, they wanted better living conditions. They wanted access to kind of like, you know, wanting to be kind of having good living conditions basically because you because you know the companies kind of just put them in bare bones um kind of 
rickety kinds of houses and oh, that kind of right, stuff. And right. the mines weren't being kind of regulated very well. They are, you know, people are just kind of just doing this um, without safety kind of regulations or not really kind of looking out for the workers. Um, and so that's when you start to have strikes um, within Choctaw in the, in the mines. And so to, you know, to Choctaw Nation, who's just like, kind of watching they're like um you can't like strike and not work like you're supposed to be working right (laughs) because if you're not working the coal's not getting mined and we're not getting money um and so if you're striking if you're a striking miner you're we consider you an intruder and you have to kind of get out of here like you're not going to work you've got to get out of here now that's a totally different way of dealing with that because they had that authority to go you're not really a, a resident here so yeah. And so then you have Choctaw Nation use the light horsemen to kind of get rid of these people. But, you know, light horsemen could enforce laws against Choctaw citizens. They weren't allowed to kind of be have jurisdiction over non-Choctaws. Oh, yeah. So the U.S. government was a kind of in charge of that. And so um, the U.S. agent would have to kind of come. And, you know, the U.S. agent is like located uh, in Arkansas, which is really kind of so far away. And so it would take a long time for them to like come or sometimes they wouldn't even come at all. <laughs> and so there's really no regulation of these non-Choctaws in Choctaw territory. Like they're kind of in this bind where they don't have the authority to kind yeah. of like just kick them out. Or if they did kick them out, then like they would just come back, you know, like oh there was no <laughs> real way to kind of govern in it was just terrible. Yeah. I mean, what a hot mess. And and that's what has happened from day one with trying to figure out how to mesh the colonizers with the American Indians and, and all that went forward from there. What a disaster. Um, now, something looming over the Choctaw was a constant thread of land allotment decisions. And sure enough, the General Allotment Act was passed in 1887, also known as the Dawes Act, created by Senator Henry L. Dawes. And what does this act entail? So you have the General Allotment Act passed in 1887. And so that only applies to kind of all of the other tribes. It doesn't apply to the five tribes, actually. Mm. Um, But basically, allotment would take all of the Indian people's kinds of lands, um, whatever is kind of in their treaty territory, and it would divide up those lands and... um, allocate them to individual native people. And so the idea was that individual Indians would like learn how to do private property. And this is kind of what I was talking about before, you know, like people like the Choctaws didn't have private property. This idea that you have an exclusive right to own something instead of it kind of belonging to an entire kind of group. Cause you know, that's what Choctaws did. Like everything kind of was collectively owned right and so they and they all shared in that and no one could just say like this is only for me mm-hmm. um and so and that's kind of we see that across the kind of nations um in that make up the united states and so yeah. um, the u.s government was like we really need these people to listen to private property because like you know private property was actually how the u.s was able to own Indian land. They're like, yeah, we have the rights to it. We own this. And so they wanted Native people to kind of learn that mindset and kind of really force it upon them because they thought that was what um, would civilize them. Like, oh, if you can own land and if you can farm it and you can create 
um, grow crops and live off of it, then like that is what you're kind of supposed to do. And so um, that's what kind of the allotment act was. It's like whatever Indian, like we're going to make all of the native people now own plots of land and kind of manage their own kinds of lands instead of, and so then it took um, basically tribal governments be kind of didn't become quite as necessary anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. now it was about the individual who was the landowner and had the title. And so then they kind of dealt with whatever land issues. And so it was I, really kind of get Native people to do that. That really is such an important point that you're making there because there is this whole like, even today, some people going, I wasn't meant to be, you know, boxed in like this. <laughs> My ancestors just roamed free in kind of an area, but we all shared everything and such a huge difference in culture. That, and I can imagine right back then at that time when it was happening, it had to have just been like, oh, wow. And on top of it, they didn't speak English. Although, you know, the Choctaw had been creating schools themselves, trying to like, learn and teach the kids so that that next generation would be able to counter some of the things happening. I mean, at some point they must've been like, okay, we're not winning. We're not going to, we're either die, you know, by the hands of people that are going to take us down, or we learn to figure out how to survive in this world, even if we don't like it of all of these non-white folks who are creating these agreements that we really can't even understand half the time. And I think it's just very interesting that that they had to do that, you know, but very business-minded, smart Choctaw folks. They knew that they had to figure out how to survive, but the Dawes Act really was a significant act to the Choctaws. My own great-great-grandfather who was Choctaw went around killing random white men in some pretty gruesome ways. And when he was asked why he did that, he spoke only Choctaw. So he told the interpreter that it was because of his opposition to the Dawes Act. Side note, he was later pardoned by President Grover Cleveland. If it weren't for the president, he would have been hanged. And ultimately, I wouldn't have been born either. But it's kind of interesting that it when I finally found the newspaper articles that talked about his reasoning, because we knew he did it, but we didn't know why, it was just such a light bulb moment. I'm like, oh, there were some natives who actually retaliated against this, who who went out and tried to to show how they were actually feeling. I, I had never even thought about that. That might be the case. And it could be that Tom Davis, my, my great, great grandfather, maybe he was the only one, I don't know, but kind of an interesting thought, right? There was definitely lots of opposition <laughs> to allotment because, you know, it's a fundamental disruption to the Choctaw way of life and it continues to be right. Cause Choctaws, there yeah. are communities who are like, we just kind of live together in this kind of area and it's kind of, we take care of each other. Um, yeah. And so, but property in itself is kind of just so culturally destructive and politically destructive. Yeah. Well, another light bulb moment I had a little bit earlier when you were talking about the whole, everyone just sharing everything and just living wherever land doesn't necessarily belong to anyone is that once my Coley's Coley families really settled and had their their farms going and all that. They were very close friends with people nearby the Coopers and the Kings and the McGillberries. And there's, there's like these characters almost in a story when I think about it, but it was real life. There was Cooper's bend and it was this beautiful area, um, in San Boys at the time. And I think about how they kind of all raised each other's kids. 
they, you know, if someone passed away, like if a, a, um, a mother and father passed away, they would just take on the kids. They just knew the whole community took care of the kids. It was just such an interesting that, and that comes from, I would assume the, the culture from where they came from and where they're actually, it would have been where their ancestors came from, um, over in Mississippi. So kind of an interesting thought about that old habits die hard. And, and I love that that's how they lived even once they were in Indian territory. So anyway, that wraps up July and we're on to August in the decade of 1890 to 1900. This time period brought many negotiations about the allotments and of U.S. interference with the Choctaw Nation. And as the Choctaws began to increase in commerce and community, the financial needs increased, correct? Yes. And so a lot of the royalties and the leases that Choctaw Nation had came from the coal mines. And so they were a really critical source of money, you know. By 1890, the Choctaw government had a lot of expenses from operating schools, a court system. You had to pay the salaries of government officials like the attorneys, the mining trustees, the school superintendents, the auditors, your delegates to Washington, D.C., all of your light horsemen, the rangers. There's so many kinds of positions. And so Choctaw Nation, you know, people had to get paid. Right. Um, (laughs) And so these came a lot from the mining. Um, The money um, went straight from from the mines to kind of in these people's pockets. And so it's not really the treaty annuities. um, That was the primary source of um, funding. Okay. And and you also mentioned in the article that because of all of that, that you just described, there was unrest within the coal mines. Yes. And so, you know, um, the safety conditions weren't kind of the best in the Choctaw kinds of mines. Um, you know, the U.S. government technically had its had safety regulations and it had federal kind of oversight being like your coal mines have to meet these kinds of standards. So it's kind of safe in these regards. You should do these kinds of practices. But because it was Choctaw Nation and Choctaw Nation had its own sovereignty over these mines, it that U.S. kind of regulator couldn't come in and regulate their mines. And so the coal miners were working in really unsafe conditions. And so um, in 1894, the coal miners go on strike to kind of um, protest um, the lowering of their wages. You know, <laughs> that doesn't make things much better. It's like very right. unsafe, <laughs> not being paid enough. Yeah, you know. Um, and so... Um, and, you know, the mines weren't actually run by Choctaw Nation, but um, it was to um, non-Choctaws who kind of ran the companies and then they would just pay, you know, royalties and the leases and it was kind of that. So it's technically not run by Choctaw government. Um, and so um, when they kind of stopped producing, Choctaw Nation filed some lawsuits against these companies um, and tried to like bring it to the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, to show kind of how they had unauthorized, they had it was an unauthorized seizure of the tribal resources and lands and all these kinds of things, but it just, it was really difficult to kind of really manage. Yeah. So you had talked about all of these non-citizens in the Choctaw area, and it sounds like these non-citizens were kind of chipping away at Choctaw sovereignty. And as mentioned earlier, there's this ever looming push to turn Indiana territory into a state. 
Yes. And so these non-citizens are always like, how come the U.S. government just doesn't just come in here and kind of take over and stop all of these kinds of problems when they were the ones causing the problems in the first place? (laughs) Ah, right, right. (laughs) Yeah. So they're like, "Mm, okay, like you're not even supposed to live here. That's why it's so difficult for you. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, Oh, so hard. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, because so then these are the people who like would um, at call to people at Congress or they wouldn't call them. They would write letters, you know, very. Okay, right, right, true. <laughs> Today they would call their email members of Congress, but right. then they wrote letters. Yeah, <laughs> so, which, they were, so they were yeah, basically ahead. petitioning these members of Congress being like, you need to make Indian territory into a U.S. territory and you need to kind of, kind of come in here and take over. Um, they were not happy about seeing, I guess, Native people running a government and kind of all of these things. And so they were really trying to undermine Choctaw sovereignty in these kinds of ways. Absolutely. So you mentioned in the article that U.S. imperialism drove foreign policy in the 1800s. Yes. So we, we definitely kind of see this. And so, um, you know, there's scholars that, you know, you know, most people always talk about it as colonialism, um, but there are scholars who like it's imperialism because they are, oh, um, you know, um, the, the, tra- the term change really matters because then you really start to see indigenous nations as nations, right? As like oh. not a, as a part, like an internal kind of colony, which I think is sometimes how a lot of people think about it, but it's actually, if you really focus on indigenous sovereignty, then if you call it imperialism, that helps you kind of understand it a little better. Okay, and it's that's just like interesting. all on the same kind of continent. Um, okay. But, and you know, the U.S. government is also starting to expand beyond um, in this time period in, um, you know, like there's, they're in the Philippines, they're trying to look towards Latin America, like what they're seeing what are the ways that we can become a little bit more powerful. Yeah. And so they're looking at different kinds of countries. So they're looking at the tribes, they're looking at other kinds of nations. Right. Um, right. And so this is just, you know, part and parcel of the kind of time period. And so, you know, these tribal nations are just kind of a really um, small subset within U.S. wider. Uh huh. Yeah. That makes sense. yes and so um uh, allotment is really kind of part of this um imperial process and so it's taking over these lands of people it's like kind of seen as like yes you're giving it to native people but you're also forcing native people to live in a way that they're not used to or is Mm -hmm. like completely foreign to them um through um yeah, so through the kind of ownership of land in this way. Um, so you have the 1887 Allotment Act. And so that originally exempted the five tribes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Choctaws didn't have to allot their lands in 1887 when everyone else was doing it. Um, and wow. this is in part because the treaties are so strong. You know, it's because Choctaws own the land in fee simple. Um, they outright owned their land collectively. You know, oh, and so they couldn't right. just kind of force the tribes um, to do it. And so it took a lot more uh, finesse from Congress to figure out a plan to kind of make them um, allot their lands. Because it's always what they've always wanted them to mm-hmm. kind of do. But the tribes kind of push against it because they're like, no, this is kind of how we manage our lands. And this is kind of how we want to do it. But then the Choctaw leaders are also seeing all of the stuff that's kind of going on with the coal mining and how, um, 
there's kind of like crime happening because like the U.S. agents aren't coming in to like take these people out and they're kind of outnumbered in their own kind of homelands and they're kind of taking everything in. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is really when they start to, you have leaders who are like, maybe we should negotiate an allotment that has terms that we have kind of, that are acceptable to us. Mm -hmm. Like they kind of started to feel like allotment was going to happen eventually yeah but and they, so they were kind of like maybe we should get in on it early so that we can get really good um um negotiation kinds of things like maybe they'll let us kind of do it ourselves or like we could do this a little bit differently than it's kind of done elsewhere um, right right okay so you mentioned earlier that the Choctaws were exempt from the 1887 general allotment act but when we talked about weasels earlier and <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like they tried to pull a fast one, right? The, the government on, on the Choctaws. I don't, I don't think they kind, Peter Pitchlin is kind of over there and you have other kind of delicates in Washington, like kind of at all times, you know, whenever Congress is in session, you know, you've got Choctaw delegates over there kind of mm-hmm. watching them, making sure they're not um, doing anything crazy, you know, cause I, cause, yeah. you know, they were trying to slip in all these territorialization bills every year and someone was always like no we don't want this no you know constantly writing rebuttals and so they they always had their pulse um had a finger on the pulse of what was going on in Washington and so um I'm sure someone was like we are not there definitely was someone who was like we are not allotting you cannot add us to this 1887 allotment act you know like they definitely protested it as it was kind of going through congress and going through the committees and kind of all of that. Um, Okay. So they were definitely in on there being like, nope, look at our treaty. It says this, you can legally cannot do this. And so they're like, oh, I guess we'll just exempt you. Okay. (laughs) And then they kind of figure it out or stuff happens. So then you eventually do kind of have allotment. So what I was thinking of was you had mentioned once that um, they used the annual appropriation bill that allocated money to indigenous nations to sneak in an authorization for the president to create a three-person commission to negotiate with the five tribes regarding the extinguishment of the national or tribal title of their lands. Can you explain that more? Yeah. So um, usually a lot of the, whenever um, Congress wants to pass laws regarding native tribes, they have an appropriation bill that kind of figure out how to kind of manage or like what to do kind of next or like, you know, kind of just managing Indians. And so um, this is because the five tribes weren't in the general allotment act. Um, They still wanted them to be allotted, but now they had to kind of negotiate it with Mm. the five tribes. And so they created a three person kind of government commission, which is what I talk about in the article. And so they're called the Dawes commission because Henry Dawes is the person kind of in charge of it. And so they're kind of tasked with um, negotiating um, agreements with the five tribe governments. And so this commission is the one that goes to Indian territory and meets with um, leaders and meets with like gatherings of people um, and try to like tell them what are the merits of allotment and why they should kind of do it and try and figure that out. But they go up, they go multiple times and people are like, no, we don't want to allow our land. You yeah. It's leave. like, go away, go away. <laughs> yeah. They're like, it's a no for us. Right. <laughs> don't come again. We appreciate your concern, 
but go away. Yeah. We, we're not even going to yeah. give you some food for the road. Just get out. <laughs> yeah. And again, so, they needed that fort around the whole Indian territory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so they're, that's constant, like, that's their one job is this commission to try and do that. And so, um, you know, and then this is kind of when Choctaw leaders, some of them are like, maybe there's something to allotment. Maybe this is something that we should be trying. And so now this, now it becomes, um, debated a lot more, um, Um, among Choctaw people about whether allotment is a good idea, whether it's not. And so they're trying to kind of all figure that out together. And so they have elections and, you know, throughout this time period, you know, Choctaw's always electing new chiefs and kind of all of that. And so sometimes a pro allotment person would be elected and then it goes to an anti allotment kind of person and kind of goes back and forth about that. And so, um, the Dawes Commission is really kind of navigating that and getting whenever they can find people who are pro allotment, they're just like broker out these kinds of agreements or yeah. try to and see if like, and sometimes they kind of come up with one and then they're like, okay, so it has to be approved by like the Choctaws. Um, and so they're like, yes or no. And kind of eventually they um, come up with an agreement that, um, goes to the Choctaws and they're like yeah okay fine like if this is how it has to be then this is how it has to be mm-hmm. um and so um and then the other thing is because the Choctaws and the Chickasaws collectively own the land they both have to agree to the same kind of agreement oh, and boy. so <laughs> I know it's wow. like hard enough to get a bunch of Choctaws to decide on one thing but right, you know, Choctaws right. and Chickasaws oh boy um, yeah so they approve one and the Chickasaws are like no <laughs> and so then they have to start all over again, you know, like just absolute uh, chaos. And so they're trying to negotiate that. And so eventually they get something where um, they have the, in 1897, you have the Atoka agreement, which is kind of like, is the plan for allotment. Like if we're going to do allotment, it's going to happen in these kinds of ways. And so they get that. And then, you know, the DOS commission goes off to the Creeks and the Seminole and the Cherokees and kind of negotiates separate agreements kind of with them. And eventually that becomes, they're kind of combined into one legislation known as the Curtis Act. And so that passes in 19, or sorry, 1898. Um, And so that kind of sets the stage for allotment. And so the Dawes Commission, um, why the, so why the, the whole time while they were negotiating this, they were also starting to do roles. Mm, um, yes, yes. Yes. And so they're like, well, if allotment's going to happen, we need to like figure out all of the native people who live here, like who's going to get land. And this is like absolute chaos. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because oh. you know, like they didn't have any, they didn't have that much money and they needed all of these people and they weren't funded enough. And so it was just like, and they were traveling all of the time and they needed interpreters. Like it's a lot of coordination. And I just, I, I feel for them. <laughs> right. Even though they I were doing imagine. something terrible, right. you know, <laughs> allotting our lands, like the paperwork, that just does not sound fun. Right. No, no. <laughs> also, I heard one time that like during that time, especially when all these um, acts were going on or trying to, trying to create these new agreements and everything that it obviously took a long time to get to different places. And so the government would try to bring all the chiefs from the five civilized tribes or, or other together. And so there'd be a messenger that would go out and say, 
all right, we need to get everybody together. Can you meet on August 10th? And they're like, uh, I guess so. Okay. When's August 10th. But, and then, uh, they'd eventually sometimes get to the meeting place that was supposed to be this big meeting with big decisions made and signatures and negotiations and all that. And then they'd realize, oh my God, we're missing like three chiefs. Where are the others? And they're like, oh, I don't think they knew about this. <laughs> Why didn't they know about it? Well, the, the, the messenger got killed on the way. So, um, or, you know, it's just like to get them all together in one place was almost impossible. And then sometimes they would just like, well, they didn't show up. We got to move forward. And so then there were sometimes agreements signed here or there that didn't have everybody included. And then that tribe would get mad at that tribe and be like, what did you do? what did you do, Gary? Um, so I can't even imagine what a pain it must've been to try to get this all coordinated and agreed upon and kudos to them for ever getting to that point. But I know when it comes to, um, the land and stuff, there has been, have been many talks over the years about the issue of fraud that was, it could easily happen. Can you explain more about that? Yeah, so when they're doing the allotment rolls um, or when they're doing the rolls, um, people are, know that that these are the basis for which people will get lands. Mm-hmm. And so um, a lot of white people who were living in um, Choctaw Nation would try to enroll as Choctaw kind of people. And so these are the kind of fraudulent kinds of cases. And so you would have people, um, so usually when you're an intermarried citizen, for instance, this is kind of one way that people would do it is like as an intermarried citizen, that usually means like you're a white person. And so you married a Choctaw person. Um, but um, if that Choctaw person ever dies and then you remarry to like a non-Choctaw person, then you're no longer a Choctaw citizen. You kind of lose all the rights um, that comes with that because you're no longer kind of a part of the family mm-hmm. in that way. Okay. And so um, you had people who would try to enroll as Choctaws by seeing, even though they had married and had children with other people. And so those were like, they were just like all white. Um, They're like, oh, my aunt at one time married a Choctaw person. So that makes me, even though I'm not like um, a direct descendant of from that marriage, I'm a Choctaw as well. And they would try to like get those kinds of ways to get them um, on the rolls. Um, And so it was also the Dawes Commission's job to kind of vet all of these kinds of people. And so sometimes some people would um, get through. And so there was all of these these kinds of people who were trying to get on the Dawes rolls. And so Choctaw Nation saw this happening at a massive kind of scale, lots of non-Choctaws trying to get on the rolls. And so they would take these people to court being like, here, you cannot enroll for these kinds of reasons and Um, so lots of fraud and actually like Choctaw Nation spends a lot of money on the court cases of people who are trying to fraudulently enroll as Choctaw okay so they could receive land allotments and so that's a kind of major thing that they deal with wow I mean what that must have been so much work it's a whole new thing for the government to deal with too they have all these new things on their hands to try to deal with and it's insane how much like stuff that they were kind of juggling, you know, um, for the, they call these the court citizen um, cases. And so they actually ended up hiring outside counsel to kind of manage all of these mm. cases of being like, and they would get paid. It's like, the more people that you kick off, the more you get paid. Um, oh. Kind of the gist of the kind of agreement being like, you know, these are. Dang. 
because they really wanted to motivate them to like get these fraudulent cases like kind of cleared up. And sometimes like you did have Choctaws um, who were legitimately Choctaw end up in court, but they were so rare. It was like one in a hundred that you would have that kind of case. Yeah. So you have one legit Choctaw who was somehow like got caught up in it and shouldn't have been considered a court case, but then the 99 other were all frauds. Oh my <laughs> Lord. Oh, what a waste of everybody's time. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. You know, was it, was it in one of your articles? Because I know that there are more articles that have come out since you and I are doing this, um, recording this together. Is it one of your articles that has the photo of people lined up to go through the application process? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the Dawes commission was basically like, they had to go to all the different kinds of sites. And so they tried to go different places within Choctaw nation to make sure to get everyone kind of put on the rolls or make sure that they were on the rolls. Um, cause you know, Choctaw nation also kept very good records of, um, the Choctaws that they had, like they did a census every six years, I think it was. And so, mm-hmm. um, at first the Dawes commission was like, your records aren't good enough for us. But then once they like had to actually do the work, they realized how good <laughs> the records were, even though they were like, so quick to dismiss it just yeah. because Choctaws made it. And they're like, Oh, it must be inferior. Cause you're Choctaw and you made it. But right. they're like, okay, yeah. um, we actually yeah. do need to use this because like this otherwise <laughs> far too much work. Um, to try and kind of meet all of these people and kind of enroll them and get them on these kinds of lists and all of that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, and for people who are doing their ancestry research right now, what, what um, I know the censuses don't go back a certain amount of years uh, because they weren't keeping a census at some point. So there's both Choctaw or there's both Oklahoma and then there's Mississippi um, how far back do you, do you know that those roles go? Because I can even find Choctaws in Mississippi, for instance, but they're listed as white because they weren't really taking formal native, um, censuses. I know that's not, that's kind of a rare case, but again, back to the question, how far back do those, when do the censuses start for the native Americans? Do you mean like a, the U.S. census or the Choctaw census? Um, let's say Choctaw, because like I said, I think the U.S. census, you can't really rely on as much for knowing if someone's native, right? Correct me um, if I'm wrong. Well, because I, I, I know that the BIA or um, would have kept records of like how many native people kind of are, but it's not as part of like the general kind of right. census, I think. Right. You know, like, like they definitely kept those kinds of records, um, but they're kind of placed differently or conducted kind of differently than the kind of wider census but mm-hmm. you know Choctaw Nation you know because they were giving out annuity payments and so that meant like everyone got some money whenever the U.S. government said them the U.S. government sent Choctaws their chunk of money that they were supposed to get so they would pay people kind of out that way and so they kind of kept records for their own management of people um I can't remember what year that they officially be like, we need to have a census every year, but Mm -hmm. I think it's like in the fifties around kind of them is when they're kind of, um, very like they pass a law to say, we're going to take a census every year, but then kind of just like casually kept the records. They didn't really keep records of Mississippi Choctaws because, um, by once they kind of get things going over there, they're like, we just kind of handle this, our, our, like these people here. Mm Because you can't really 
take care of the Mississippi Choctaws because they had also decided that they're going to be stay there in the homelands. And so like, they're kind of starting to be seen as separate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Although like, cause... you'll have families who like, will be like, I still have families and might go back and forth. Right. But those right. are kind of a lot more rare. But at least, you know, with the census, you can actually find stuff about your relatives. Oh, he was a farmer and he had four kids and that kind of thing. So mm. thank goodness well, for the, the census. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the other things is like Choctaw Nation, the national governments back throughout the 1800s kept really good meticulous kinds of records of like how many people there were and um, of like receipts and all of this stuff. And mm-hmm. a lot of these are at um, the Oklahoma Historical Society and the microfilm. It's called yes. the Choctaw National Records. But um, that is actually just only a small fraction of what had existed at one point. Um, so I came across this kind of letter going through um, like the OHS's kind of records. And so, uh, or because so they acquired all of the, so all of the national government records. Um, the U.S. government kind of acquired them. Like they mm-hmm. all went into the custody of the U.S. government and they're like, oh, these are the oh. old government's records. And so they kind of had that for a while and um, they were like kind of all stored in the attic of the area office in Muskogee. Yeah, so what? all these ledger books <laughs> and all these kinds of things. And, you know, like there were so many of them because oh after gosh. like statehood, after statehood, they just like kind of had all these things and they're like, well, we're not going to use it. And so I remember coming across a letter where they are like, okay, so we burned nine tons of these <gasps> record books no. from all no. of these, from the five tribes. And so they existed, but you know, oh they God. were kind of also just like gotten rid of because they were seen as like, what are we going to do with this? It doesn't matter. And so um, Hold on. I got to go cry. I'm going to pull my <laughs> I, eyes out. I, I'm know, so upset. I know. When I came across that letter, I was like, so upset. Are like nine tons nine of tons. books. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Everybody who's ever done ancestry on their relatives right now are just throwing up. We're all upset. I, and I'm with you people. I'm with you. I wish I could get, give everybody a hug right now. That's a huge surprise. I had no idea that was going to come Megan in this conversation. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So if they used to have such good records and, you know, I'm at some point the Dawes commission had access to these kinds of records, but they like don't exist now. Um, yeah, but at some point, like they kind of really all existed. And so it's just like now that we're not able to kind of access them because they're no longer there. But before that, lots of records, (laughs) lots of like, I undermined it was like half of it, you know? So at some point there was 18 tons of records. I really underestimated their, their records. I had no idea. I'd thought all this time, well, they just didn't keep records, but at some point they did start keeping records and it probably would have been super interesting at this point. They had records like from when they got here, you know, cause they what? had, you had such educated Choctaws. And so they came here with like English education and all of that kind of stuff. And so there was so much, you know, and I think Choctaws and Cherokees have some of the largest archival collections um, created by their like original governments. Um, but it's just kind of not looked at as much. And so yeah, oh there, there's a lot. Oh, 
Wow. I'm still trying to get over the shock a little bit. You might need to give me like 15 minutes. Just kidding. (laughs) Well, when you're researching, let's say if I were to go to the historical society, which I've done before, and I've, I've gone through their, their stuff. What I'm trying to decide too, is when you go to the historical society, is there anything there that's not online? Are you finding things that you wouldn't find elsewhere? Um, well, the microfilm collection, you can only see on microfilm. It's not been digitized. So you kind of really have to sit there and oh boy. there's over like for just the Choctaw National Records, it's like over a hundred rolls of microfilm. Lordy. And so that's like hundreds of volumes of books, you know, cause they have multiple volumes on one yeah. roll of microfilm. So okay, okay <laughs> there's a lot. you can be reading for forever. And I think their newspaper collections are really good. Those are also microfilms. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like to go through that. Um, I, I love old newspapers, y'all. Anybody who wants to understand, like be able to read about Native Americans in just a totally different way. I have newspapers.com and it, of course not, not every newspaper has been scanned in, but there's a lot of newspapers in there. You can find out so much stuff and how the non-natives were feeling about American Indians at the time. Like, oh, there was this Indian girl and she was drinking a lot, the town drunk again, you know, things like that. Or, um, or they would sometimes be in awe of them, you know, this beautiful regalia as the, the natives, you know, cross through our, um, our town to be able to go do their powwow, maybe not powwow, but gathering, whatever it was, but it was just so interesting. Like I've spent a lot of time going down these rabbit holes until 3am, just reading newspapers and (laughs) newspapers.com. You have to get a subscription, but even if you did it for a short period of time, it's so worth it, but make sure you have your caffeine ready because you will be up all night reading. Um, I had another question for you. So there's the micro film that is in the historical society and then there are the records that are in let's say Choctaw Nation did they are those separate like are there are there is there more information at Choctaw Nation like in your own archives than someone might be able to find in the historical society well the Choctaw Nation records are kind of um we've had staff that have gone to different archives like across the country and kind of scanned or photographed kinds of what exists in other places and Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a centralized hub kind of in that way but it's not everything and um, I'm trying to make it more of everything but I am also one person and it's a pandemic and you can't travel oh yeah (laughs) oh shoot (laughs) um but you know there's stuff all over the kind of country um and yeah it's it's really everywhere there's a lot of records Mm -hmm. on at the Oklahoma um at OU's um Western History Collection and a lot of those are actually digitized so they have like the Choctaw National Records uh, they have a Peter Pitchland collection that's online and I think Green McCurtain's collection is also online so you can see some of those documents and they'll yeah. have like letters and a bunch of different kind of stuff um, from the time period um, those are online so the, you can definitely access those well, as we've talked before, God bless the folks who have spent time trying to digitize all these things and, and get them out there for us so that we can just go to one place, the internet and be able to see a lot of that information. So I took a big detour there because, you know, I just love this stuff. So thank you for, um, humoring me. We're now in the decade of 1900 to 1910, which is a crucial decade in our history. And this November article is part one of two. So technically we'll cover the first five years 
in this part one, <laughs> if that makes sense. So it sounds like yes. the first five years were pretty tumultuous. I mean, talking about drama, like we were earlier, um, bring it on. Let's hear about it. Yeah. Allotment was really contentious. People were like, what is going on? We don't want this kind of happening because Cranky. it kind of people see it as the end of Choctaw Nation in Aww, some ways, right? Like so if you're sad. not going to be um, having a government who kind of manages everything kind of collectively, like kind of what is the point? And so yeah, yeah. it's about, you know, like a political future. And so allotment really fundamentally will transform Choctaw society. And we've seen this like the way that we live now, like we live in its kind of aftermath and the consequences mm-hmm. of it. Um, yeah. True. And so like we're living in it. And so this is what the people were arguing about. We're worried about. <laughs> and yes. It happens. <laughs> and it happened. <laughs> um, it did, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so um, as I kind of mentioned before, you have the kind of a Togo agreement um, from that kind of outlines how the Choctaw and Chickasaw lands were going to be allotted. Um, And so in this like 1900 to 1905 period, this is kind of when, so, um, so they, they got the, uh, the Dawes commission was able to secure an allotment agreement and they're starting to do roles. And so um, once you do the roles, you can then um, allot out the land. So you can like assign what plot of land each person kind of gets. And so this is what they're kind of, um, doing it this period and trying to figure that out. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of relates back to that picture that's in one of your articles where the, I never thought about it, that people would walk up to this tent that was set up for the enrollment process. And they would go through that application process and have their interviews, I guess, or whatever, right there. And then it would be time to sit and wait for their approval and their allotments to um, be assigned, which was a few years apart, right? Yeah. So like technically you could have like done your interview very like early on. So you could have like done it in 1900, mm-hmm. but the roles weren't officially closed um, until like 1903. And it's like only when they're closed then that you can um, parcel out the allotments to people. Okay. So even then, what's always been surprising to me is the removal happened starting like the 1832. Well, I think there's one more early one before that, but either way. Yeah. 1831 is the first one. Oh, 1831. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, so like, let's say you moved over to Indian territory in 1831, and then you waited until the, um, you were able to sign up for, you know, go through the enrollment process. And then by sometime after 1903 or so was when that would happen. So that was like a long time. That was like a long time later. Right. I mean, were people still alive that had originally come over and, and I've always wondered myself, sorry to take this side note, but my Coley family, when around the time that they had that big farm and their house was burned by the son-in-law, um, they had that farm, but I don't know how they got that land because that wasn't that at the time was not their land allotments. Um, so how did that work? Like, were they, they came over and they were just given different little plots, everybody until the actual. Yes, basically kind of, um, you know, when Choctaws came over, they kind of came within their each kind of districts or like whatever mm-hmm. community that they were a part of. And usually when they, they would go over, take, go on the trail of tears together and then like kind of figure out an area where they kind of all wanted to live. And so, um, you kind of, 
move the communities kind of in that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And so, um, because Choctaws own the land collectively, people kind of just picked out areas that they wanted to live. And usually it was pretty close to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you, you basically could only kind of claim whatever you could reasonably manage yourself. Like you couldn't just like own acres and acres of land that you do nothing with, but like you had to show that you were actively like improving the land, that you were like building upon it, that you were farming on it to kind of be like, okay, that makes sense. Like you work that kind of area. So that's kind of um, the parcel that you kind of had. And so people just kind of lived on their parcels kind of this way, Okay, but there was no really kind of rigid, um, this is from this fence line to this fence line is my kind of land. It's really yeah, like yeah. what you actually did something with, you know, something much more sustainable, you know, yeah. you keep to your kind of self. And so if you could manage all that stuff, then great. Um, then you can kind of have all of that. And so then you are allowed to kind of live in that parcel and, you know, people come and go kind of all yeah, that. So, yeah. Yeah. And so that's how most Choctaws did kind of things. They just kind of lived wherever, did whatever. They built a house there and they just lived there, built their yeah. house and did that kind of <laughs> stuff. And so with allotment, it's totally different because it's like, you have to live within these parcels. Like this is your homestead. This is the, this is your square or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. And then you have a homestead and then you have um, what they called a surplus. Um, Uh So they got three. So the way that Choctaw land allotment worked was um, you had to get a valuation of the land. So they had to survey all of the land to see like how much it was kind of worth. Mm. And so then they divided it by the number of Choctaws that there were. And they're like, oh, okay. So the average value of the land or is about this many acres. And so whatever parcel of land, whatever its valuation is, has to be equivalent to 320 acres. So actually, so it's not that everyone got 320 acres. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the value was the same as that. So you could have like oh. smaller allotments of land. So, so you could say like, if you got 70 um, acres of land, it was still worth the, um, the worth of the land itself was worth gotcha. 320 so it's acres. Like really easily farmable or it has yeah through it or exactly. Oh, so like if so it has smart. Okay. So if it had like minerals kind of um with it, or if it was like really bad farmland. So you could have like 600 acres of really bad farmland because that's like the equivalent of 320. And I think some people sometimes get um, mixed up about that because it is kind of yes. complicated yes because <laughs> um, like you can't ensure the same quality of land you know it's mm-hmm. so different across the landscape and so that was the way that they kind of factor that in so interesting and one of your focuses again is on land right in your studies mm-hmm. so uh, lots of interesting stuff there is is there anything else you want to share about how all that worked or anything about the Choctaw land or I think that's fascinating Oh, I think that's that's kind of um, the gist of that. Okay. Just going real quick to basically recap the the recent agreements. So the Atoka agreement outlined the procedure for how the Choctaw and Chickasaw lands would be allotted. And we talked about the Atoka agreement and the Curtis Act in the Mm -hmm. August article. So those two are related a bit. components of the Atoka agreement were then integrated into federal legislation called the Curtis Act and extension of the 1887 General Allotment Act, 
from which the civilized tribe, the five tribes were originally excluded. And then quickly after the agreement's approval, the U.S. DAWs Commission began taking applications to enroll Choctaws. Now that whole piece of information that you included in that article was eye-opening to me because I was always like, wait, what goes with what, where, why? Um, so that, that really helped open my eyes. So listeners, if you need to soak that in, just push pause for a minute. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> Who were these people, though, on the Dawes Commission that held the future of the livelihood of the Choctaw in their hands? I've always wondered. Yeah, so it was um, originally you had those three kind of former congressmen um, who were kind of in charge of negotiating kind of all of that. But once it was like, okay, we we have signed these agreements for allotment, it starts to expand. Um, And so you have lawyers, you have lots of clerks. Mm. Um, who are kind of keeping these records, typing things up, writing them down, um, typists, all of these people to kind of keep the bureaucratic um, nature of the commission and all of the enrollment process Mm -hmm. kind of in order. Um, And so one really famous kind of person who comes out of this is actually Grant Foreman, who was a lawyer um, who worked for the Dawes Commission Um, during this time. So he was like there on the ground enrolling people. Um, And he's most known as like one of the most premier historians of the five tribes. Oh, wow. And so um, he wrote um, Indian removal. He wrote the five, um, the five civilized tribes. And so these are like um, reference. I think most people, if you're going to read about the five tribes, you read Grant Foreman's books. Oh, Um, okay. And so um, he's this kind of really big historical figure, uh, or his, he's more of a, sorry, he's more, he's like the historian you kind of go to. It's like, usually you read Angie DeBeau and you read Grant Foreman. Those are the two that most people, when you are learning about the five tribes, you read. Oh, good um, to know. Okay. So I think it was pretty crazy that Grant Foreman, you know, was a part of allotment. And so he was kind of there watching this kind of play out. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so then he like learned a lot about them. And I think that's kind of what drives him to kind of write their histories because Mm -hmm. he was like seeing all the crazy stuff that was going on. And so wanted to make sure people knew about it. Right. Right. Oh, so interesting. Um, well that that's, I definitely need to get his book because obviously if he was there for the whole process, then be an interesting take on things. But so it sounds like um, we talked earlier about the the tent. I don't know why I'm so fascinated by that, but um, <laughs> but it sounds like they would just travel for who knows how far to the camp in Atoka, Oklahoma, or well, it wasn't Oklahoma at the time, but or or another site to start the interview process. Do you know any more details about that? Um, so they kind of go all over. I think they go to Electri at one point, but I know they sent up an empty like railway car. It was just kind of like there. And so they, they made that their kind of office. And so oh, really? I, that is, I think that's one of the images that it accompanies one of the articles oh, is yeah. um, the railroad and like the railroad cart with them kind of inside. And then you have all these people kind of lined up waiting for their turn. Mm. But yeah, they kind of like moved around, but like um, Atoka was definitely, cause it, um, Atoka was pretty central mm-hmm. in Cha Nation. And there was kind of a lot going on at one point 
one of the chiefs like makes the capital there because it's close to him right. where he lives. And he's like, uh, yeah, we're going to, the new capital is Atoka. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, it's kind of a central location and it's easy for people to kind of get to. It's like right off the railroad. So, you know, easy in that regard. Um, so, so yeah, but they, they go all over. Okay. And you know, I, when you go through that interview process to go through your application and all that, I've read so many of those interviews that my relatives fill out for their enrollment. And it's great for people who are trying to learn and understand more about their ancestors in those interviews. Um, and they're even talking about their own families. Like they'll talk about their grandparents. So again, for people trying to trace their ancestry, um, finding your, your packet, your family's packet, it will have, um, a lot of information in there. And, and a lot of times those interviews, if they haven't burned in a fire, because it seems like half of my family's information has burned in a fire at one time or another. So, but you can learn a lot from these documented interviews. So tell me more about this whole interview process and the approval or denial process and all that. Yeah. So you would have a individual might kind of come in and, um, answer questions like who's your mother, who's your father, siblings, mm-hmm. who are you married to, any children, kind of getting all of the family information. Um, sometimes they will have other people kind of come in and verify that you are who you are. And so they kind of have all of these and then they, they become the kinds of cards. And so it tells like where you live, what district you're in, um, all of that information and Mm -hmm. then that kind of becomes um you're kind of a packet and so it's like goes through approval to like cross-reference with like existing Choctaw kinds of roles or whatever else they kind of had and so um those become the basis for kind of Dawes roles of those who are kind of approved um for that and so once you're approved, then you can go on the list of people who can get an allotment. Okay. Well, and, and then something I know you had mentioned was there were times when uh, people would change their names or had, you know, maybe because of marriage or whatever, or had since passed away, which added to the confusion, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, you have people who would change their names. And so that, that's also what made the kind of Choctaw records difficult to work with and trying to figure out who was who, um, is it the daughter, is it the junior, is it the senior, (laughs) you know, and they would have the same kinds of names. And so that added to the kind of difficulty. Um, but yeah, like language barriers and how sometimes people would write down names, like sounding out the, the name versus, you know, there were not uniform names sometimes, especially if they were using their native name. Yeah. you usually had interpreters there. They always made sure to kind of have Choctaw interpreters. I think one of the articles has um, a picture of one of the Choctaw interpreters um, along the Dawes Commission. Really? I think it's one of the later ones. I, I think That's so. so. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's like a picture of them in a buggy, like, and oh then the gosh. Choctaw interpreter is there. Um, I think I used it because I, I, I had like a bunch of pictures that I usually use because they're associated with the um, allotment period. Yes, yes. And so I was, I know that that picture exists, but I'm, and I'm pretty sure that that's what I selected to go with the article. You and I both have not looked at the article in a few months. So I'm sure (laughs) if it's in there, I'll definitely make sure there's a photo attached to um, our conversation uh, when the episode comes Mm -hmm. out. So (laughs) yeah. 
Um, yeah, and so then then you have the kinds of Dawes rolls. And so these are the same Dawes rolls that Choctaw Nation um, uses today as the basis for membership. So, you know, you can only be a member if you can trace your lineage back to someone who is on the Dawes rolls. Okay. Yep. And so they went through this interview process, which was to qualify or disqualify them for being granted their land allotments. But the land allotment process was so much more complex with the Choctaw and the Chickasaw. Why is that? So because, you know, the Choctaws and Chickasaws were kind of combined, oh, um, yeah, right. you know, okay. together. And so the land had to be kind of allotted together. Um, one of the things about Choctaws is like, because they had that provision in the 1830 treaty about Mississippi um, Choctaws, um, and I don't, no one, no one else had like leaves kind of people behind in the same way that the Choctaws did. Mm-hmm. And so this is a kind of, Thing that the Dawes Commission has to kind of account for. Um, and so they actually have to go to Mississippi to kind of do roles of people being like, um, if you want to come to Indian territory and get an allotment, you can kind of do that, but you have to be on this role and then you have to go make the move and then you'll get an allotment. And so the Dawes Commission gets sent out to Mississippi and they have a really difficult time kind of like tracking people down and getting these kinds of roles. And this is kind of when they discovered that William Ward's records were horrible. (laughs) And they kind of realized the state of what he had kind of done and he had not actually kept records the way that he was supposed to um, as his job. Um, Right. So they kind of realized that. And so this becomes, um, so that's why you kind of have a separate Mississippi Choctaw role Um, it's kind of all of these people who like went to Mississippi and then came to Indian territory, like, um, in the 1900s. And so, um, you know, at the cultural center, there is a, um, part of the removal exhibit talks, focuses on the removal of, um, Choctaws in the 1900s and how they're kind of brought over. And it's because they're trying to get, um, on the rolls to get allotments. And so they're brought, they come over much later. And this is kind of seen as one of the last removals um, for Choctaws. Um, And yeah, if you go to the cultural center, you can read the kind of stories um, Mm. out of this. And so a lot lot of the people from Ardmore actually, because that's kind of the the train station that they would go to, I think. a lot of people who come from Ardmore are descendants of these Choctaws who came um, in the 1900s instead of the 1800s. Okay. Okay. So fascinating. Yeah. yeah um, you know, also um, Mark Williams just made a film. He worked with our historic preservation department mm-hmm. um, to make a film about this, the, this last removal. So he worked with Deanna and Misty in our department. And so you guys should check out that film. Definitely. So now in 1902, there was an election for the chief. Tell us about that. Yeah, so in 1902, the Choctaw principal chief and the Chickasaw governor ordered a special election to kind of um, decide on what Choctaw people, well, Choctaws and Chickasaws thought about a supplemental agreement, which kind of fixed some of the details of the Atoka agreement. You know, mm-hmm. a couple of years have passed now and there's been a lot of movement towards allotment and things didn't play out quite that they thought it would and so they kind of wanted a supplement to kind of figure out how to do stuff moving forward um and so Choctaws 
actively debated this, sending out pamphlets and letters. And so people were kind of um, wanting to decide. And so mm-hmm. they were also electing a chief that year. So there was wow. a lot of kind of moving parts. So the race was between Green McCurtain and Thomas um, H. Hunter and eventually Green McCurtain wins. Um, and so, you know, Green McCurtain, he originally opposed allotment when he first kind of like started out as a politician, but he in the selection was really an advocate for allotment and um, that's kind of why allotment happens. And so um, it's ultimately his signature that everyone sees on the allotment patents. So if you happen to have an allotment patent, it's signed by Green McCurtain. Okay. Yeah. His name is all over so much stuff. A lot yes. of my family's records and all that very famous chief. I've been to his house um, out there too. And I mean, obviously it's dilapidated and I think the land is owned by an oil company maybe, but which is such a travesty. I wish we could figure out how to get that fixed up. Do you have funds that we could use to fix that up? <laughs> Just like laying I around. Wish, <laughs> I know. I wish there was, there's so if I had a lot of money, I would do so many things. Right. Oh my gosh. Me too. Like saving all the things that are about to be dilapidated and just like caved in and done. It's it's terrible. Absolutely. The Dwight Indian mission is, do you know about that place? I've heard of it. Yeah. Refresh my memory about it. Oh, no worries. Um, so Dwight Indian mission was a place where, believe it or not, I think it wasn't even a Choctaw school at the time it was maybe one of the other a few other tribes um a school down there it had moved over I think from Arkansas or something to Marble City Oklahoma and I was lucky because I I actually went there and I tell this in one of the previous episodes but I went there asked the director I was like I'll have some family with me and we would love to see Dwight Indian mission, because we know that there's a lot of history there. And he was like, oh yeah, come anytime. He was so nice. He showed us around and there was this one building. There were some old buildings there, but most of them were newer. Um, Cause now it, where it used to be a native school, now it's like a church camp, but one of the buildings they had just left intact and it was super old. And it was like walking into a time warp because everything was still, most everything was still there. It was all the old doorknobs and um, classrooms and stuff for when, you know, our, our relatives and other natives were there at that school. At the time, I actually did not know that my relatives went there. I had, I had heard that maybe my dad had said it one time, but that's all I knew. I, I had no information. I couldn't find anything on it. And so here we are walking around this big school building. It was amazing. And just so intact for how it used to be. And at the very top floor was really neat because he said, we didn't even know that this auditorium was here on the third floor. I think it was the third floor. Um, and he said, but one day we tore down these walls and we found the staircase or something that goes up to this auditorium. And it was just perfectly preserved. Like, like one day they just never came back again, but on the bottoms of the chairs are these cowboy hat holders. So there's like a wire, round thing that holds your cowboy hat under your chair. And, um, (laughs) apparently the kids used to go in there and they would do anything from assembly to, they would do plays in there and stuff. Um, so he said, um, that one of the, I won't say the family name, but it's basically one of the largest stores in the country, maybe in the world. Um, one of 
the descendants of the original guy who built the the company, they were going to actually restore because she used to go to that camp and they were going to restore that building. And I was like, oh, I hope that restoration means that they keep all this old stuff and just make sure it's not falling apart. Because, you know, restoration sometimes means we're going to gut everything and put all these new windows in. Um, so I was like, I'm glad I got to see it for the last time before this was going to be renovated. <laughs> well, then we get yeah. to so upsetting, you know, it's like, don't do that. <laughs> this is yeah. a piece of history, a huge piece of history. So later that night, we went back to Wayne, Oklahoma, which is where my family lives. Um, some of my family, the ones that still have our land allotments. And I was sitting with my aunts and I was telling one of the aunts that did not come with us. I was like, oh, and it's so cool. And she was like, wait, Dwight Indian mission. She goes, I have a roster from there, like a copy of a roster and it has our family members on it. And I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> and so she went and got me a copy and made me a copy. And I was like, wait a minute, Sandra, we went there today and we had no idea we had family members that went there. I mean, we, we wondered, but since when have you had this roster? She was like, well, somewhere we found it in these archives and, um, and the guy, the guide that had been there with us at Dwight Indian mission, he had told us, uh, that all of their records had been sent to a museum and he told me the name of the museum. I called the museum and they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. So they were probably dumped at some point. And so I wouldn't have known if she hadn't many, many years ago found these records and made a copy. So the crazy thing is I, you know, there's my great, great granddaddy or sorry, uncle Edmund, there's a bunch of his brothers. And so he was the brother, but he taught his brothers and sisters there. And what's interesting about that is if you read about Dwight Indian mission, you don't, I don't think there's any mention of Choctaws there. It's, it's like a Dwight Indian, I'm making up a name, Seminole school or something, you know, like, or Dwight mm -hmm. Indian mission that teaches Seminoles. And what's so crazy is there was this whole time frame where there were Choctaw school administrators and there were Choctaw students. I mean, it was completely Choctaw. <laughs> so I'm like, did y'all even know there were Choctaw here? Those are my family members, all of them. And they're in that school and nobody talks about it. So how in the world did I get off on that? Um, but basically if I had money, I would go down to Dwight Indian mission, which is now closed. It's called Dwight missionary. I don't know. It's, it's called something else now, but it still has Dwight in the name. I would go and restore that building the way it should be restored. I would buy the whole campground. And then I don't know what to do with the other, um, buildings. Maybe I could just host a bunch of friends there. I don't know. Um, so yeah, if only we could win the lottery. <laughs> that would be nice. That's not a lot of problems. <laughs> it would. It's so would somebody give us money. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, but so I took you down this big rabbit hole about my family. Um, and, and when you're talking about the chief being voted in, what's interesting is this would be the last time they would vote for a chief until 1975. I didn't know that. So tell me more about that. Yeah, kind of, or like in a, in a, in an, um, official kind of capacity mm -hmm. because, you know, like throughout the 1900s, Choctaws would kind of gather and like vote for, um, the person that they want for chief. And mm -hmm. then they would tell the U S the secretary of the interior, and then they would get kind of like nominated to be the chief. So, but they, that wasn't kind of like recognized in the same way, but I would still say that people still got to vote for chiefs, um, oh, throughout yeah. that period. Cause I know a lot of people, um, know that the U S government appointed the chiefs, um, mm -hmm. throughout the 1900s, but you know, 
the U.S. president was always actually just listening to what Choctaws really wanted because right. <laughs> they were gathering and they'd be like, oh, we want this person or we don't want that this person. Right. Um, right. So that was still kind of going on, but it was kind of um, a lot more like at the grassroots level and more low key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Very interesting. So uh, then in 1905, the leaders of the five tribes met to talk about creating their own state. So tell us more about that. I found this fascinating because I somehow never knew this either. I'm learning so much, Megan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm so glad. Um, So in 1905, the leaders of the five tribes like meet together at a kind of constitutional convention and they were trying to decide if they should be their own state. And so this is actually what they kind of know, um, they now call the state of Sequoia. This is kind of what they proposed. Um, it would basically be an Indian run state. Um, they, and so um, they kind of created a constitution and they'll be, um, so this would have made them a US state. So it's not like they would be a kind of like separate Indian state, but they would become a state within the United States. Okay. Um, And so they would have been like the 46th state and um, it kind of would have meant the disestablishment of all of the governments of the five tribes. Um, And so like those governments would no longer kind of exist and instead they would kind of govern together Mm -hmm. um, in a, so you'd have like representatives from each of the five tribes. Um, And so um, it's not a confederacy of tribes, but um, just really kind of broken down. And I think, I think a lot of people think of it usually as, oh, like um, it's a kind of confederacy in which all the tribes would still be kind of autonomous, but Mm -hmm. it definitely was not, that's not what it was. Um, And so, but, so they kind of come up with this idea. And so they submit this as an idea to Congress um, because, you know, Oklahoma territory had already been kind of created and, um, they wanted to become their own state as well. And so they would have been, so that those would have been two different kinds of states. Mm -hmm. Um, And they submit the proposal (laughs) to Congress. Um, But then the president at the time was Theodore Roosevelt. And he was like, kind of seeing what was going on. He's like, no, I don't want two states. I just want one new state. So, you know, Oklahoma Uh and Indian territories should be kind of combined as a single state. And so once Congress like heard that this is what Roosevelt wanted, they were like, okay, so we're not going to like admit you as a separate kind of territory. And so you kind of have to come together. Oh. So obviously this never came to fruition and it's interesting to think of what Oklahoma would have been like if it had instead been the state of Sequoia. Can you imagine? Um, so, you know, happened- actually, um, Oh, I was just gonna oh, say, go you, Stacey Leeds, actually, she's a Cherokee, um, Scott lawyer and scholar. Um, she talks about how if actually, if the state of Sequoia had actually happened, it probably would have been a bad thing. Um, oh, really? Five what? tribes. Yeah. Because, um, if you think about the politics of the time period, you know, they never would have gotten anything done and they would have like been um, subject to the majority because Mm -hmm. all of, you know, it would have been the one Indian state. And so they couldn't like have power over the other 45 states. Like they would just get outvoted all of the time. So she has the argument (laughs) that it actually is probably better that they didn't become a state because then you wouldn't have the same five tribe governments that you have today you know, because well, they would have been gotten rid of altogether. And I so it'd been a, a totally different history. Wow. 
I guess on a rare occasion, sometimes things do happen for a reason, (laughs) especially for the natives. Okay. So listeners, we're going to have to leave you with a cliffhanger because Megan is still working on the second half of the series starting in 1906. And it's going to be super interesting. You've got statehood and life for the Choctaw after land allotments and so on. So Megan, will you be sure to come back after the second half of the series is complete? Don't leave, leave us hanging forever. Absolutely. I think this is just like kind of also the perfect um, end point is like right when we get to statehood because it's a totally different ballgame. Totally, totally. There's so much to that. And I can't wait to delve into it more. And so we Choctaws receive the actual, um, the Biscuitnik paper. When I say actual, I mean, it's like a newspaper. It's, you know, you can get it <laughs> online too. Copy. But yeah. And I love that. I love being able to thumb through the paper. Um, and it's actually so full of great information each month, but anyone, whether you're native or non-native can read it online, right? Yes, Absolutely. So anyone can go to ChoctawNation.com slash Biscuitnik dash newspaper dash archive. And I'm not, I don't expect anyone to write that down. Don't worry. I will put that on my native Choctaw Facebook page. So anyone can enjoy learning more about this and be sure to look up Megan's articles as well. Um, go check it out. Y'all you can learn so much about our tribe and culture and goings on. And Megan and I are so proud to be part of a tribe that truly cares about its members and has all these great resources. And they really do put a lot of these resources out there. So the general public can enjoy it too. So Megan, you've spent years researching and you've committed your education and your career to the research of our native people. And we want to thank you for that. The Choctaw nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Choc Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends. <laughs>